How's everybody doing this morning? Awesome. Wow, like one person was like, great. Everybody else is like, we don't want to be here. <laughs> uh, it is so great to be with you here all this morning. If those of you online watching with us, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're continuing in our series on unconvenience. And now I want to give a heads up in case there are little kids in the room. I don't see any, but today is a PG-13 message. Um, we are going to be dealing with some adult-themed topics. And so uh, some of you need to hold on to your socks because you might be a little uncomfortable, but that's okay because Jesus makes us uncomfortable all the time. Amen? Uh, so we're going to be digging in, talking about sex, adultery, pornography, you know, the light stuff, uh, lust. And so far up to this point, Jesus has been redefining God's law, parts of the Ten Commandments specifically. And last week or the last couple of weeks, we've been dealing with the issue of murder and anger and pride which actually comes from the sixth commandment when God says you shall not murder. But Jesus takes it a step further and says, listen, if you've hated your brother or sister, if you've called them raka, worthless, without purpose or fool, you've committed murder in your heart. And immediately all of us go, yikes, because guess what? Has anybody here not hated somebody or said something mean to somebody? Because if you haven't, please, I'd love to meet you because you're Jesus. Like, it'd be great to have you here. Uh, Murder, according to God's definition, murder is not so much about the action, it's the heart behind it, because it's the heart that causes it. Does that make sense? And so when we look at that, what it means is, is that all of us are guilty. All of us need a Savior, not just for our actions, but for our thoughts and our heart. Now, right now in our country, I feel like this is very important. We've had a couple moments like this, because let's just be honest, the last Sheesh, year and a half have just been filled with strife. Now, I want to tell you, I praise God that justice was served in Minneapolis. I do. I'm not saying I'm happy about it, but I do praise God that justice was done for the murder of a man. But I think it's important for us, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, and as we're looking at this unconvenienced life, well, God just leveled the playing field. Before we cast judgment on Derek Chauvin and sit there and go murder, and some people are angry, if you have hate towards him, you are just as guilty of what was taking place in there. Does that make sense? And I think that's important for us as a nation to hear this because there's so much vitriol, there's so much animosity and anger, and people feel like they're justified in their hatred. And the only thing we can ever hate is sin. If we hate sin, we do not hate people. Amen? Now, what I will also say is this, is that we should be praying for Derek Chauvin, for all those involved, that first and foremost, if they don't know Jesus, that they would come to Jesus, that they would confess their sins, that he is faithful and just and trust and believe that God can save even the worst of sinners. Amen? And now, more importantly than that, I think what we really need to be doing is starting to pray for unity and healing in our country, because we need it. Now, what we talked about last week was that or the last two weeks, is that when we don't deal with our anger, our anger will deal with us. And unchecked anger will ultimately lead to human wrath. And where does that come from? Well, this struggle with anger, the struggle to reconcile or to repent, quite simply comes from one big word, pride. And last week we talked about that, and our American culture praises pride, high esteem, and criticizes low esteem, but both are rooted in the same problem, self. Jesus didn't call us to high esteem 
or to, to too low of esteem, but rather for us to have esteem in Him. Both of them are guilty of thinking of themselves way too much, and that's part of our problem, isn't it? It's not that we need to think less of ourselves, but we need to think of ourselves less. And I don't know about you, but when I was going through the iceberg, walking through that illustration that we had last week, I kind of go between the two all the time. Sometimes I have that moment of really high sense of self-worth and I'm too confident. Other times I don't feel confident enough. And Jesus calls us to reside in the middle, to go below the surface. You see, our esteem is found in our identity as adopted sons and daughters of the king. And sometimes we forget that. Now, some of you have been trapped in the stronghold of other people's opinions of your life. And instead of asking God's opinion of you, you need breakthrough. And last week was an invitation to do that. And it's a continual invitation for us. For those of you who are watching, if you need breakthrough from the opinions of others of thinking of yourselves too much, this is where you come to Jesus. Some of you think you're incredibly strong because you got this. But the stronghold of financial and spiritual self-reliance and independence has actually kept you from experiencing God's freedom and true intimacy and connection with God. Your church and maybe even your spouse. You ever wondered why some people are workaholics? Where are they finding their identity? Where are they finding their worth? Is it in money? Is it in security? You might need breakthrough. I know I do. Now, I got to tell you, this morning's not going to get any easier. Now, I hope you hear this. I didn't choose this topic. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. So it's not like I was like, you know what? Hey, I'm going to pick all the fun, hard ones. No, if we're going to be faithful to the word, sometimes we read things that make us uncomfortable. And that's the inconvenience of following Jesus. We're choosing to step in the path of it so that we can become more like Jesus. Do you want to become more like Jesus? If so, say yes. Now, that's going to require some challenge. There's an invitation and a challenge that takes place. For those of you who have done our discipleship stuff, invitation challenge. How many of you guys know that language? Some of you do. If you don't, see Jennifer Colby. Talk to her. We've got an amazing discipleship stuff that we're going through, and there are people here who've walked through it. But all of it, Jesus is constantly inviting us, inviting us to become more like him. But in order to do that, we must be challenged. So I want you to hear God's heart, not just mine. I want you to hear God's heart in this because once again, this morning is an opportunity that could quite frankly come with a lot of shame and a lot of guilt. And some of you here might be wrestling with stuff or you're going to listen to this and go, oh my gosh, that's me. And I want you to hear this. Jesus came to proclaim news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed. Some of you are living in oppression. Some of you have been trapped in this stuff for years, and I'm here to tell you that in Jesus there is freedom, but there's also a choice. You must choose to submit to Christ and do the work. I also want to tell you this, is that we have a real enemy, and by him I mean Satan. Satan is a real person, real angel, a fallen angel along with his demons. He's not just some evil force or entity in the world. He is a real threat, and he wants to do everything he can today to stop you from hearing this message. To hear God's calling for victory in your life today. Some of you in this room are struggling. He's going to try and work overtime this morning to make sure to keep you distracted. Because that's what he does. I, I put a quote on from Corey Ten Boom 
this week, and it says, if Satan can't make you sin, he'll keep you busy. And it's amazing how many responses I got to it, how many people were like, yes. Sometimes we're like, oh, I'm not sinning, I'm just busy. Busyness is a way of keeping you from doing the hard work of following Jesus. Maybe it's making you think what you're doing for lunch after this. Some of you right now are already planning. It's like two hours ahead, and you're like, man, what am I going to eat? If there was football going on, you'd be like, what time is the Vikings game? Some of you are thinking about the house project that is waiting for you back at your home. Others of you, maybe you got into a fight on the way here, and that's all you can think about. For some of you, it's your cell phone. You're so busy thinking about checking your Facebook message, your Instagram, Snap post, whatever, all the stupid social media stuff. I don't remember 90% of the words of it. Others of you, it's frustration because technology may not be working. So those online, I know we're having technology issues. Don't let technology get in the way of the Spirit. Others of you, you're thinking about the next field that you need to plant. Because yes, I know farming has started. So before we begin, can we come in agreement with the Holy Spirit that the way we fight is not with flesh and blood, but in the spiritual world through faith and power in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit with the armor of God. Amen? So here's what we're going to do. Before we go any further, it's not uncommon to struggle with how to pray. And one of the best resources that if you don't know what to pray is actually just using Scripture as the resource. Using it as the map or the guide. And this morning, we're going to use Ephesians 6 as kind of our map. And so before, we're going to do even one better than that. Instead of me just praying, we're going to pray it together. And if you have your Bibles or your Bible on your cell phone, would you take out your Bible? And here's what I want you to do. I want you to hold it up with me. And we're going to read on the screen. And i got a prayer that we're going to pray together. Are you guys ready? To do well, let's do one better. Let's stand up. Let's stand up. We're going to pray and we're going to come fighting the way that we're supposed to fight, which is not in our flesh, but it is through the Holy Spirit and God's Word. Amen? All right, so would you join me in prayer? If you got your Bible, hold it high. You can hold your cell phone too. Just put it on the Bible app or something. I don't know. Just shine it up. Here we go. Father God, we are strong in you. Through your mighty power, we demolish every stronghold that comes against us. We put on the full armor of God. We surround ourselves with truth, knowing it is your truth that sets us free. We guard our hearts with your righteousness, a righteousness that covers even the most vulnerable areas of our lives. We declare that forgiveness is through your name alone. We proclaim that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We stand ready with the gospel of peace, believing that our peace with God with others, and with ourselves is secured through you. We take up the shield of faith, believing it will extinguish all attempts of the enemy to try and destroy us, lie to us, shame us, or isolate us. We guard our minds with your salvation, declaring that even our thoughts are freed through you. We take up your word, which is sharper than any double-edged sword, believing that it contains the words of life. We proclaim transparency and safety in this community of believers. We cover one another with grace and mercy and acceptance and love. Together, we stand firm against the devil's schemes. Be near us, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. You may be seated. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. What a great way to start off a message. That was awesome. I got, I got chills. I always want people like, I got the goosies, and I'm like, you got the what? You know, the goosies. You mean goosebumps? 
I got the gooses. <laughs> All right. Now, again, Jesus is not coming to bring condemnation. This is Matthew chapter 5. It's the first book of the New Testament. Now, in the first week of the series, Jesus makes a statement, in my opinion, it's kind of unsettling for us, and this is what he starts off with. In verse 20, he says this, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's the thing. The Pharisees and teachers of the law were like the religious rock stars. They didn't just keep the Ten Commandments. They kept all 600 laws. They even added some laws called the traditions of men. They were super spiritual on the outside. And Jesus just said, if, unless you're more righteous than them, you can't come in. The kingdom of heaven is not yours. Now, this is why Jesus is reframing the law. Because what we tend to think is that the law is about what's on the outside, the problem with them was this, is their inside didn't match the outside. On the outside, they looked really good, really spiritual. On the inside, they were dying. Now, I want to make this a little bit more tangible for us. I'm a huge fan of the Marvel movies. Any Marvel movie fan people here? Just a few of us? It's great. I love the Marvel movies. Black Panther, one of my favorite movies. I was shocked to find out that Chadwick Boseman died this past year from cancer, colorectal cancer, but even more shocked to learn that he had been battling cancer since 2014 and told no one about it. So when he was making The Winter Soldier, Black Panther, when he was doing all of the Marvel movies, he was dying from the inside. On the outside, he looked great. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying he got this because of sin. That's not what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at is, on the outside, he looked really healthy. On the inside, he had a cancer, a war raging within, and he kept this battle a secret. Some of you here have been keeping secrets for years that is leading to death inside. And Jesus is saying the only way you can be set free is you have to expose that stuff. And let's just be honest, that's scary, isn't it? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I could guarantee if you were honest with yourself, a lot of us here have things that we've not told one another. Shameful things in our past, things that we're doing today, addictions that fuel us, that harm us, that we keep secret out of shame and fear. And if we don't deal with those things by going to Jesus on the outside, we can look really good. And I'll be honest, some of the most legalistic religious people I know are often the most toxic. They just hide it really well. This is why God cares about the heart. Judgmental and self-righteous people can do and say all the right things on the outside while they're being destroyed, eaten alive, dying on the inside. Okay, so you haven't murdered, but you've hated. You have unchecked anger. You've spoken poorly of others, plotted and schemed, and have had wrath and malice in your heart. I've dealt with these things. Your anger and wrath has a grip on you. Some of you, this is a secret sin that is holding you captive. In the last two weeks, Jesus is saying, you need healing, not from the behavior, but from the heart condition. This is what you need. Inside, you might deal with the sin of pride, either thinking too little of yourselves or way too much. Believing you are worthless is just as prideful a statement as believing you are awesome. Because who are you to tell God that you're worthless when he has declared that you are worth everything? Someone needed to hear that this morning. If you're walking around and believing that you have no value, 
That is a prideful statement because God has told you you have value. You're an image bearer of the king and you are loved. Jesus has not called us to higher or low self-esteem, but esteem in him. And this morning, there's a, we're going to talk about a, a stronghold, an internal belief that some of you, many of you might be trapped in. And if not you, maybe you know somebody who is. It's the stronghold of adultery and lust. Now, again, I told you this morning was going to be PG-13, a little brown chicken, brown cow. That's right. That was for Kate Garner. <laughs> we were doing a read-through, and she said that. She's like, can you say it? I'm like, I will. She told me. <laughs> Matthew 5.27. All right, here we go. Matthew 5.27. You have heard that it was said. Now, when he's saying you have heard, he's referring to the law, the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's straight from Exodus 20.14. Jesus is quoting from the Seventh Commandment. That adultery is a sin, unlike murder, which most people in our modern society would say is unequivocally wrong. When it comes to the issue of adultery, there are many people, including in the church, who think it's okay. And that's heartbreaking. There are some of you in the world who would say it's okay to cheat on your spouse because the heart wants what the heart wants, Jason. Whatever makes you happy, you deserve to be happy. You need to lead your best life. By the way, if anybody ever says that to you, that is straight from the pit of hell. God cares less about your happiness and more about your holiness. And our world tells you that the ultimate, the pinnacle of success is when you are the most happy. Now, if we were truthful with ourselves, there are things that make me happy that are not holy. But they're temporary. And adultery is one of those things that exists and it's a fatal flaw in our culture. Now, I've yet to meet or perform a wedding, and I've done more weddings than I can count for a couple who went in thinking like this. You know what? I promise to have and to hold to be faithful to you for about a year or until someone better comes along. I've never heard that. In fact, if they ever did those vows, I'd stop the wedding right there and say, yeah, I'm not marrying you. <laughs> I've never heard somebody going into a marriage thinking, you know what? I hope this ends poorly. I hope I have an affair. This is the thing. No one goes into marriage expecting to commit adultery, but it happens, doesn't it? And it doesn't just happen. It's a slow fade that gets you there. Gary Thomas, who in his book Sacred Marriage, if you've never read Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas or listened to the audiobook, it is exceptional. I highly recommend it. Listen to what he writes. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? The key question is this. Will we approach marriage from a God-centered view or a man-centered view? In a man-centered view, we will maintain our marriage as long as our earthly comforts, desires, and expectations are met. In a God-centered view, we preserve our marriage because it brings glory to God and points a sinful world to a reconciling creator. I love that marriage is meant to be a picture of God's love for His church. Couples don't fall out of love so much as they fall out of repentance. When I tell you that I preached to myself before I ever preached to you, I read these words many years ago when, as Lisa and I were just, again, being a married couple. And I'll tell you, it's so easy to fall into the trap that the world wants you to think that the goal of marriage is just happiness. Now, don't get me wrong. God wants you to be happy. But ultimate happy, happiness comes from holiness. That's really where the source could, should come from. See, again, affairs don't just happen. They're small decisions over time that lead to big issue later on. 
And there are limitations to adultery, even according to God's law. For instance, if I'm not married, how do I commit adultery? Some people will kind of find loopholes and they'll say things like this. Well, Jason, it's okay if I'm having sex with a bunch of people because I'm not married. So it's not adultery. Fornication, having sex outside of marriage, falls under the realm of sexual sin. In the New Testament, there's a Greek word that has, it's kind of what's called a junk drawer term. It's porneia. You can kind of get where that's coming from, don't you? It's saying anything, any sexual sin outside of the confines of marriage, any sex outside of the confines of marriage is sinful. It's not what God intended for you. Now, here's the thing. Jesus, in the ancient world, there was only, they only saw adultery as one thing. And it was sexual adultery, having an affair. And usually, the way, and, and we're going to get into this later on in, the sermon, in this whole sermon series on the Beatitudes, but they would find loopholes, legal routes around this so that they could divorce a woman quickly. And then Jesus says a hard word. He says, when you divorce that woman, you've now forced her into adultery. Now, some of you are like, wait, we're going to get to that. On another, actually, next week, we're going to be talking about divorce. So I want to encourage you, whether or not you've been divorced, you know somebody who is, come. Come and hear it. Because I guarantee you, there are going to be things that you didn't know. And there are going to be words that you need to hear of healing and reconciliation. Words that will bring you back. But there are two types of affairs that our culture now recognizes, and they're both wrong. The first is sexual. Most people get this. It's the giving of your body to another person other than your spouse. The person you've made a spiritual and physical covenant to, which is your husband or wife. The second is an emotional affair. And this one's more nefarious because, quite frankly, I know a lot of Christians and people in the world who don't give a second thought about this because sex isn't involved. An emotional affair is giving of your emotional intimacy, your heart, your inner being to connect with another person other than your spouse. Both are forms of adultery. When you are married, you are supposed to give your whole self to your spouse. And when you share that with somebody else, you run into the danger of a physical or emotional affair. Now, here's what I want you to hear. Not all lust leads to adultery, but all adultery is rooted in lust. Let me say that again. Not all lust leads to adultery, but all adultery is rooted in lust. When you marry someone, they are your primary source of physical and emotional connection and intimacy. Now, that doesn't mean that if you're a man, you can't have female friends. I have friends that are women, dear friends, women that I consider sisters. Matter of fact, I usually call them sister. But here's the thing. I have safeguards in place. There are conversations that I will never talk about with another woman other than my spouse. In fact, I think we need friends of the opposite sex to balance this out. There are times when I don't understand my wife and so I talk to a sister in Christ and I'm like, oh, so I'm the idiot. My bad. <laughs> Sometimes we need, it's, it's helpful and holy. Jesus had friends of both sexes. We need that, but we must have safeguards. And here's the other part. I never keep secrets from my wife. I don't share something with another woman that I would never share with my wife, ever. In our culture and in the church, there are those who are having emotional affairs, sharing intimate details of their lives with another man or a woman, and don't think a thing about it because sex isn't involved. And yet, in God's eyes, it's adultery. Now, let's stop for a moment. If you've had an affair, I want you to hear this. If you've had an affair, if your marriage is struggling, maybe it's ended, maybe you're remarried, I want you to hear this loud and clear. 
If you have confessed and repented, you are forgiven. You are absolutely forgiven. You are not defined by your adultery. No more than I'm defined by all of my sins. I'm defined by the Jesus who saved me from my sins. You are defined by the Jesus who saved you from your sins. Amen? So this is not a message of condemnation or shame. It's actually quite the opposite. You see, adultery is not the unforgivable sin. Don't get me wrong. Adultery has serious consequences. It can lead to a breakdown in family, to great hurt, financial ruin. It can take years for a marriage to recover from the pain of an emotional or physical affair. These are real things, but redemption is possible. And when you remarry, there are things that you can do to make sure that you don't fall into those things. And we're going to be talking about that next week. That's, again, whether or not you've ever had it, I think it's an important message that we all need to hear. Because I guarantee you, everybody in this room knows somebody who's been divorced, who's had an affair. We need grace. Now, here's the other thing. If you're actively having an affair, stop. Stop it now. Don't stop tomorrow. Don't stop this afternoon. Literally, if, if you need to, get on text. Do it quietly. Whatever you need to do, end it. Be done with it. Remove yourself from the situation with that other person. Get help. Confess and repent. Get counseling. The longer you wait, the more opportunity for the cancer of that to ruin not just your marriage, but your life. And that's not what God wants for you. Once again, though, what does Jesus do? He does the same thing he did for murder. Jesus is about to ready level the whole playing field. He's about to put us all on the same level so that those judgy people are like, well, at least I've never had an affair. And now Jesus is going to go, okay, let's talk about that. Oh, could you imagine sitting and listening to Jesus and sitting going, yeah, man, I'm great. And then all of a sudden Jesus goes, oh, but wait, I, I have to say some more. And then he says the next thing and you're like, oh, crud. The ground is level at the cross. End of story. Matthew 5.28. But I tell you, now again, Jesus is saying he has more authority than God's law because he is God and he created the law. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now some of you might go, well, I'm a woman so this can't apply to me. No, it's whoever has looked at a man or a woman lustfully has committed adultery in their heart. Just like murder, Jesus is saying the real issue is in the heart. The real issue is not the action. The action is the symptom of the disease. There's something going on internally. Now, the religious leaders who were hearing this, I'm sure they at first were like, well, I've never committed adultery, so he can't be talking about me. But if they listened to the rest of Jesus' messages, they would have realized that he has this subtle way of twisting things quickly. And you want to see how messed up and perverted the Pharisees were. Again, the ones who thought they had it all figured out, if you just turn a few chapters, a few books to the right, John chapter 8, a very familiar story. At dawn, verse 1, uh, 2 actually, at dawn he appeared again in the temple, this is Jesus, the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teacher of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now I want to stop here for a second. There's someone missing from this story. They've only brought the woman. Last time I checked, it took two to have an affair, and yet they've brought only the woman 
to bring her before Jesus to trap him. Secondly is how did they catch her? It looks like they set up a trap. They lured this woman in her brokenness and they let the man go scot-free. Doesn't that happen in our culture sometimes? They were willing to sacrifice her to catch her in the act. Now here's the bigger. How long did they watch the affair go on before they called it out? Did they wait till she got naked? Did they wait until they got far enough? Like how far was too far? And why did they drag her in front of a group and not just bring her alone to Jesus? What were they trying to do? Were they were trying to bring shame? This whole story should make our stomachs churn. The shame and guilt this woman must be feeling, but the spiritual and emotional abuse we are seeing witnessed in this moment is horrific. And yet, how does Jesus respond? See, Jesus goes on and says, In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Actually, this is what they say. Now, what do you say, teacher? They were using this question as a trap. This is verse 5, in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, there's a strong warning here for those of us who are Christians. We need to stop using God's word as a weapon to cause harm, to trap, to justify, to shame. Stop perverting the gift of God's word. They were using God's word as a weapon, not to cut out cancer, but to beat sinful people. That should never be how God's word is used. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, we don't know what he was writing. Some people think that he was just doodling. But listen to what he says next. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up. And I love this. He straightens up. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, here's what I'm wondering. What if he was writing on the ground the names of every person in the crowd and the sins, the secret sin they were committing? Could you imagine you got a stone, all of a sudden you look down and then all of a sudden you see Bob. Pornography. I guarantee you I'd be the first person to drop a stone. But you know what I love that he wrote it in the sand because here's the best part. What does Jesus do? What couldn't Jesus do? He can just wipe it away. Jesus then sees the woman and he says, hey, Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. And he said, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. He not only brought freedom from the guilt and shame, he then said, go and stop doing what you were doing before. Jesus is calling us to more. Where we see sin and shame, Jesus sees the hurt and longing of your heart because Jesus sees through a different lens, the lens of love and heartache. Where you see sin and shame, Jesus sees the longing in your heart that you're trying to fill with the wrong thing. According to Jesus, if you've looked at someone lustfully, you committed adultery in God's eyes, whether or not you are married. Every person in this room has lusted before, myself included. And in God's eyes, that's adultery. Often, how do we do this is through the stronghold of pornography. Pornography is a real threat. It used to be difficult to access porn, sexually evocative images, but now it's available with the touch of a button on these little computer screens that can absolutely kill us internally. Sadder still, our definition of pornography has changed to make us feel better as a culture. Pornography used to just be a playboy, and no, you don't just read it for the articles. Just saying that right now. Pornography is anything that tries to create sexual desire in a man or a woman, whether it be a blatant website, a magazine, a TikTok, How many of our social media things promote little children, 9, 10, 12-year-old girls? 
to sexualize their bodies, not realizing some sick, perverted man is watching. These are real things. Fifty shades of gray. Now, before you go, but Jason, those are just images. Fifty shades of gray. I knew tons of Christian women who read Fifty Shades of Grey. Why? Well, Jason, it's not pornography. Yeah, it is. Oh, wait, they made it into a movie. So it's not just written. They had to do one better. 15.2 million copies sold from 2010 to 2019. <clears throat> the problem with porn, if porn is just images, is that it actually is deadly. Listen to these some statistics, some facts. Porn versus cocaine. You may not have realized that there's a correlation between the two. The average age of exposure for porn versus cocaine. The average child is exposed to pornography by the age of 11. For cocaine, it's 19. The average reach, how many people actually are reached or affected by pornography. 99% of people have been affected by pornography versus 16% of people by cocaine. Cocaine meth, by the way. Usage, 24 million people regularly use pornography, struggle with addiction, as opposed to 1.5 million people. On the brain, porn affects the development of gray matter in the brain, leading to a lack of motivation, sometimes leading to depression. Cocaine affects the gray matter as well, and it leads to impact on decision-making. If you've ever met a porn addict, they make bad decisions. Guess what? So do porn addicts. Cocaine addicts and porn addicts, their gray matter, their brain starts being rewired by the drug that they're choosing. One's an external drug, the other one's an internal one. Addiction, porn increases levels of dopamine in the brain, which leads to a lack of sensitivity, meaning increased usage to get the same result. Cocaine increases the same level of dopamine, causing the same issues, which is why coke addicts, meth addicts need to do more to get high. The same is true of pornography. Violence, both Cocaine and porn, porn can lead to violence and suspicion, but porn is more apt to lead to sexual aggression, violence, including rape and sexual assault. Both can lead to extreme depression. But Jason, porn doesn't really hurt anyone. It's an innocent sin. People die from cocaine meth overdose. I've never heard of a porn overdose. Guess what? Statistics and science tells us differently. If you've ever talked to somebody who's caught in a web of pornography and addiction, marriages are struggling, ruined, their lives can be impacted. Jobs, motivation. Porn has real physical and psychological consequences from the death of a marriage, unhealthy and unsatisfying sex lives. And the stress of porn of sin can lead to depression, anxiety, along with other health issues, including suicide. Porn does kill. May not kill you the same way cocaine does, but it'll kill a marriage. It can kill your drive. It can kill your job. It's a real issue. And more importantly, if you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus says it's wrong. Lust is wrong. So I don't care. You can read men's health and they'll tell you the benefit of porns. Guess what? Men's health is not the word of God. I don't look to men's health to define what spiritual health looks like, what real health looks like. I look to God's word and God's word tells me that it is wrong. Jesus wants more for our sex and our sexuality. The real question is not whether or not you've ever lusted, because I would dare say we all have at one point. The bigger question is this, is how seriously do you take sin? That's why what Jesus says next is more important. Sin separates us from God. Sin leads to isolation and hiding. Sin causes strongholds and keeps us stuck. Sin leads to guilt and shame. It leads to death, death of relationship, death of trust, death of a marriage. God reminds us in Galatians 6, 7-8, do not receive, 
do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. He's so serious about sin, God is, that he sent his son to die for it. How serious are you about sin? What Jesus says next is to make the point, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better for to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. There was an early church father named Origen who took these words so seriously that he castrated himself. Jesus isn't being literal. He's being hyperbolic. He's saying, how serious are you about the issue of sin? He's exaggerating to make a point. It would be better to go through life with one eye and one hand and one leg because I don't just need my hand and my eye to sin. My leg gets me there. My mouth gets me there. How serious do we deal with sin? And why does he use the eye and the hand? Well, lust enters in through the eye, but it's carried out through the hand. You can do the math. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about lust that leads to physical activity by yourself. Yes, he's talking about masturbation. But he's talking about it through the lens of lust. This is serious stuff. R.T. Kendall says it this way. The eyes are vehicles of lust. They're the gateway. The hand is used to cause sexual arousal. Jesus is making a point. It would be better to go through this life without eyes or hands than to spend eternity in hell. How serious are you about sin? Desire for your spouse is great. God designed it that way. You should desire your spouse. Lust is about desiring something that is not yours to have. Lust is thus connected to coveting the 10th commandment. We've all been tempted, but temptation is not the same as sin. Temptation is something even Jesus went through. Sin is what you do with the temptation. Jesus himself said, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We understand how hard this is. But in the Holy Spirit and in community, we can fight it. So I want to leave you with some ways to fight temptation to defeat lust. And if you're struggling with porn, if you've got it on your phone, if you've got it in magazines, movies, Fifty Shades of Grey, the, the romance novels, smut stuff, all that stuff, get rid of it. Don't throw it in the trash, throw it in the fire pit. First, choose a better dance partner. Are you partnering with people, places, and things that encourage sin? Do you have people in your life that try to normalize sin? If you're not strong enough to not let that affect you, you need to cut them out of your life. I'm not saying you only have to hang out with Christians. In fact, we shouldn't just hang out with Christians. We need to be friends with people who aren't. Call it out. Bring it into the light. We must call sin, sin. Stop making excuses for it. The deadliest sin is the secret sin or the accepted sin. Avoid it. Get rid of it. Kill it. Don't visit places or people that will almost certainly mean having to confront temptation. I repeat, your strength is not so, so, so much resisting temptation as it is avoiding it. That's R.T. Kendall. The only healthy sin is a dead sin, Matt Chandler. Train for breakthrough. Now check this out. I want to give you real simple, practical ways for breakthrough. You guys ready for this? Who's ready for this? There we go. Okay, here we go. First, pray for the Holy Spirit, power, revelation, strength. We need the Holy Spirit to reveal. Second, read your Bible. We need our Bibles, but here's the thing. The Bible and prayer is not enough. It's not. You need community. Don't just go to church, be a part of church. 
You need safe people who you can share your struggles with. Men with men, women with women. If you're struggling with these things, don't talk to someone of the opposite sex. Talk to somebody of the same sex. If you're not creating, as a church, if we're not creating a culture filled with grace, mercy, and without judgment, we are not being the church. This needs to be a safe place where we can talk about real issues, even the hard ones and scary ones. Amen? Fourth, confess and repent. Make confession and repentance part of your daily life. If you practice it, it becomes a whole lot easier to do on a regular basis. Lastly, or fifth, submit to Jesus and resist the devil. Too many of us are, too many of us are resisting Jesus and submitting to the devil instead of submitting to Jesus and resisting the devil. God has called us to more. And then lastly, become a person of restoration. Places like Celebrate Recovery, our small group ministry, journey groups, hero makers, sisterhood, our marriage ministry, these are places to be in safe community I want to leave you with the challenge and the being inconvenienced. Would you stand with us? And we're going to end with the worship song. Here's the challenge. What sins in your life are you not taking serious enough? Where do you need a vision check? What do you need to turn your eyes from so you can turn them to Jesus or back to your spouse? And here's what it means to be inconvenienced. Jesus and the Spirit are inviting you to take the courageous step of bringing sin into the light, not to bring shame or condemnation, but freedom and restoration. It's a step we must all take daily and not alone. We're going to come and we're going to worship Jesus. And I want you to hear this. If you're struggling with guilt or shame, and it doesn't have to be about pornography, maybe it's guilt from an affair, it's other sins, we're going to have the prayer corner open. Now, here's the thing. Someone's like, I'm not walking over the prayer corner because people are going to think like it's, it's my car over at the pleasure place. See what I did there? Just made it a whole lot lighter in here, didn't I? If you need prayer, we need to be a safe place. If there are things, guilt and condemnation, do not assume that if somebody is walking to the prayer corner, it's because of that. But even if it was, shouldn't we be a church that people can truly come into the light? That's who we need to be. Jesus, we just lift this up to you. And as, as we come, people, I want to invite you, raise your hands and worship. Come and surrender. When you lift your hands and worship, it is an act of surrender to God. And we all can do that. So would you just come, let us sing and worship, and then Pastor Derek's going to close us out.